Live from beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics with occasional injections of rumor in your window, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public service professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by drug policy reformer Jim Garrick, conservative Republican Jeannie Ives, conservative attorney Josh Cantro, and progressive author David Masiotra. Our program tonight coming to you from base at the beautiful WCGO studios in Evanston, Illinois. Nice to have you with us. Another full hour is a broadcast here on the Smart Talk Radio Network. It's nice to have you with us this evening on any of the Smart Talk Radio Network stations that join us tonight. And again, I want to begin, uh, we're going to jump right in uh, with our guests because one of the issues with all of the discussion of the decision uh, up in Minnesota with uh, the Derek Chauvin trial and uh, the other uh, issues involving police shootings that took place and, and knifings that took place over the uh, past uh, week, uh, the subject of policing in America continues to be a hot topic. And the way in which uh, Congress is responding to it at the moment is they're trying to come up with a bill that will resolve some of these issues. Uh, one piece of legislation is the George Floyd bill, which is being offered by Democrats. Um, Senator Scott, uh, Tim Scott of South Carolina, has authored uh, a Republican version. And one of the points where they appear to be uh, at odds at the moment is who pays? If a police officer does something wrong or is judged to do something wrong, should he personally pay for it? Uh, some Republicans are suggesting it should be the police department. We had a caller last week on this program that said that it should be the unions that end up paying the bill because some of these municipalities are, are spending, you know, tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars over the years in settlements that go to police officers uh, who uh, who uh, uh, do not perform their duties uh, well, or at least according to the standards. So I'm going to begin with a question. Uh, I'm going to begin with you, to Josh, because you are a, a bona fide attorney. Uh, we've got two on the show this evening. My question to you is, uh, who do you think should be the responsibility? Should, should it be the ultimate officer or uh, uh, their, uh, their training uh, people at the, at the academy? I think it really depends on the conduct involved. If the conduct is uh, simple negligence, uh, like what we saw with the uh, police officer in the Minnesota suburb who uh, thought that uh, she was utilizing a taser and instead was utilizing a gun, that was negligent. Um, if, if in those types of situations, I do not think the individual officer should be responsible. Perhaps the union, perhaps obviously the city, obviously okay. the police department bear responsibility. I want to get everybody else's response. Let's go to Jim Garrick, who's also a card-carrying attorney, or was at some point. Uh, Jim, what's your reaction? Uh, who should be responsible and liable for this? Well, with the type uh, and size of awards that we've seen, for instance, in George Floyd, $27 million, it's going to be a rare individual who would have the assets to be able to pay that. So as a practical matter, uh, it needs to be uh, an insurance company or a village that owns a water tower or a highway or a skyway uh, in order to really uh, pay these huge numbers. The numbers are so huge because the civil rights violations are so huge. The police conduct is so bad, so outrageous uh, that this uh, Chauvin case, if I had been the prosecutor in that, that jurisdiction, 
I, I would have accused him of first-degree murder for the last five minutes of the knee on the neck. Okay, let's go to Jeannie Ives and get her response from a conservative Republican perspective. Jeannie? Well, I know there's a lot of talk about ending qualified immunity, which essentially would put police officers on the hook for, for large um, financial problems if they were convicted of um, finding somebody, you know, taking away somebody's civil rights. Uh, but if you do do that, if you get rid of qualified immunity, which, by the way, you still have qualified immunity for um, elected officials, for lawmakers, uh, this is you know, uh, what's good for one area may be good for the other ones, and they may want to think twice about qualified immunity. Uh, but let's be clear here. Uh, from what I've read, there is no way, there's nothing um, that says that he can't additionally be charged uh, and fined for his actions, uh, Mr. Chauvin. So we'll see how this plays out, but it certainly doesn't give them um, complete ability to do whatever they want carte blanche. That's not the case. You know, the verdict came out. He was found guilty, guilty, guilty. Um, justice was served in that case. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think that, you know, I, I don't know. These multi-million dollar lawsuits are a problem. All right, let's go to David. Let's go to David Masiotra and get your answer to the question, David. Uh, on, on the issue of uh, yeah. liability, where do you come down? The phrase skin in the game originates in the Shakespeare play Merchant of Venice, mm -hmm. in which the merchant says, if we both don't have skin in the game, it's a bad deal. So I would say that police departments and unions have to be on the hook for a certain percentage of the payout, mm -hmm. because as it stands now, they can ignore a pattern of abuse from officers. And then when a judgment goes against that officer, the taxpayers pick up the bill. Right. Well, that's out of order. They need skin in mm -hmm. the game. Right. Well, again, also, as, as Jim said, uh, you know, in the case of George Floyd, a $27 million settlement, there isn't any individual police officer uh, is going to be able to afford something, something like that. Let's move, let's move to, to, to beyond this. And I want to start with you, David. Uh, what is the lesson learned from uh, the, the Derek Chauvin trial now that it's over and, uh, you know, three uh, guilty verdicts back? I see it as two lessons. First, the, the power of activism when it is done peacefully and within the laws of our society to change our culture, change our political system, and then manifest in the legal system. Second, I'm buoyed by the fact that of the 20 expert witnesses who testified against Chauvin, 10 were from law enforcement. Uh, so we might see some erasure of the thin blue line, which for so long protected cops who weren't worthy of that protection. Maybe Josh Cantor, I want to get Josh's, Josh, do you, do you think that's the big headline out of this trial as well, that finally uh, the thin blue line was crossed? Josh? I don't think so, because it was easy to cross any thin blue, it was easy to cross in blue line in this case, okay. because of the outrageous couple uh, that I, I don't see that really being the lesson of, of this case. This was an easy call here. Um, this was murder. Anybody who saw the video could see that it was murder. I think that it's important not to draw too many lessons from such an extreme case. Uh, Jeannie Ives, a reaction from you. Did you, uh, did you see it as murder? 
Uh, well, that's, you know, I didn't watch any of the trial. The jury found it as murder. I'm going to go with what they said. That said, you had a lot of, what well, I'll tell you what the Democrats are coming out of this case. They're basically using this as a reason to say that everybody around the entire United States, every system is systemically racist. And they're using this to catapult critical race theory into schools to uh, make all sorts of additional training requirements on race going forward without looking at this as an isolated incident of a bad cop who did bad things. Nobody, you know, in our state did anything to kill George Floyd. Right. Um, Jeannie, means- we've got we've got to pause. We're going to a break. 1-800-723-8289. Back with conversation when we roll on from Evanston, Illinois. I'm Bruce Dumont. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Wish you were here. Words we've often seen on postcards and letters from friends and family. Luckily, there's an entire state that whispers, wish you were here. Climbing my dunes, sailing on my breezes, walking along my beaches, and getting lost and found in my forests. This is a postcard from Michigan, where wishing you were here is the heart of pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. In the wake of the uh, verdict from uh, Minnesota, uh, many of uh, African-American leaders and family members who gathered uh, outside the courthouse, uh, they talked about racism. They talked about systemic racism, which is something that we heard a great deal about in the recent presidential campaign. And I want to begin with with you. uh, I'm going to begin with you, Jim. Um, how, How do you define systemic racism and how do you Prove it. How do you track it down? If if you were if we gave you a, a magic wand and we said, Jim, stop this. Where would you start? It would end the war on drugs. I would end drug prohibition. Uh, I would I would look to the origin of the war on drugs and its effect on policing. I would look to President Obama's twenty first century task force on policing that made 14 pages of recommendations and not one of those 14, one of those recommendations in 14 pages says anything about drug policy. Uh, We have sent. But again, uh, what's the answer? By the way, let me just mention, we will talk about it because your lifelong goal, uh, you are, you're a reformer. You love to talk about uh, drug policy. You probably do it in your sleep, but go, go beyond your personal obsession here. And, and try I, to answer my question in a more in a more practical way, because if you wanted to end you know, the war on drugs, it would take years. What, what do you do right now if you had the ear of the president and the attorney general? I'm going to let you think about that when we go to David Masiotra. David, no, I'm going to go to David. We're going to come back to you, Jim. David, what's your answer to right. the question? My answer, what would I do immediately? The first yes. step. And how would you define it? I, I define systemic racism by uh, either with or without intention. We don't have to say that everyone operating a lever is a Klansman. 
the system produces uh, racial disparities. We see that in education, we see it in criminal justice, it's in various other levels of our society. Uh, what so when, would, when, no, but when, when a police officer, when a police officer gets up every day and puts his blues on and goes to work, uh, do you think he is automatically, uh, unwittingly perpetuating a racial system, even though he may not have a racist bone in his body just because he puts that blue uniform on? No, no, I don't. I don't think that. I think that Rosa Brooks is an excellent journalist, and she actually spent six months as a police officer to research a book on policing. And she said that right now what happens in the poor sectors of our society, they've been so undercut from resources, police have to act as social workers, therapists, mediators, medics, and warriors. And the result is they end up doing it all badly. So one of the first things I would do is address poverty. I would address the root causes of criminality okay. in neighborhoods like South Side of Chicago or North Side of Detroit. I want to I want to I want to come back to that because I I don't deny that that's not an integral part of what we're talking about. But again, we're talking about long term. I'm looking about I'm looking at for some first steps. Let me go to Jeannie Ives and see if uh, you've got some first steps to deal with this that that maybe we would all see in our lifetime. Jeannie? Well, first of all, let's talk about systemic racism. You always have to ask the question, if a system is systemically racist, who's running the system? And we know in Chicago who's been running the system for 90 years. It's the Democrats. And we know right now who controls the system in this area. It's the Democrats. Same thing with Minneapolis Police Department. Same thing with Minneapolis City. They have been running the systems. So um, it, it, now I would agree completely with David. Uh, education is very important to stamping out product, uh, poverty, but the education system is, uh, you know, it's well-funded in at least our area. We're one of the top-funded states, and mm -hmm. Chicago particularly spends upwards of 20000 per kid, and they still have schools that are still open where only 3% all minority students, only 3% read or do math at grade level. That is the problem. And you can't, the CTU shut down, Chicago Teachers Union shut down school the entire okay. year. All right. I want to go, I want to move, I want to move, I want to move, I want to move, I want to come back. I want to, I want to, no, 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 just, no, just a second. I want to go to Josh because everyone took that question and they hit the ball out of the ballpark with their issue. Now I want to go to Josh and ask this question again. In a practical way, if you had the ear of the of the Attorney General, I'm sure you'd like to, to be able to say that, uh, what would be the first two or three things you would say to deal with the issue of real or perceived racism in the police departments of the country? Well, first of all, I don't think that you can take the, the George Floyd, Derek Chauvin incident and say that that's a racist incident. I think that you can look at it and say that that is just a bad cop. And I don't know that anything has been proven to show that there was any racist intent here. And so I object to using this extreme case as a platform to disparage police. Okay. Uh, I agree with a lot of what has been said. The police have, are, are, are the cleanup crew. I mean, I, I agree with, with some of what David said, but Jeannie's also right. Who has been running the city? So it's the Democrats. It's it, And in many cases, it's African-Americans. So many African-American leadership here in Chicago, running Chicago. So I, I'm not even 
going to concede right now that we have a problem with systemic racism in policing. Rather, we just have bad cops, bad, like we have bad public employees. How do you how do you others. how do you root them out? I want to go back to Jim Garrick. He wanted to get in, but Jim, answer the question: How do you root out a bad cop? And and you know, don't tell me you're going to end the the drug war. Because you may want to drag them, but but what do you do first? Where do you start? So Bruce, President Nixon started the war on drugs. Yes. Ehrlich, Ehrlichman, who was one of his honchos, said, yeah. we want to go after the lefties who oppose the war, and we want to go after the blacks. And so we came up with the idea we're going to make a war on drugs, and nightly people can sit in front of their televisions and watch the bus of, of black people. The ACLU writes a paper that says, uh, the war on drugs in black and white, which which showed the clear prejudice and discrimination against African Americans and the operation of who gets arrested, who gets prosecuted, who gets the deal, and who goes to prison, and it and it's grossly uh, unfair to African Americans. Uh, now the, the 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 verdict we saw in Minnesota. This was just one instance of police abuse, which you can see across the, the country. Somebody's uh, Eric, uh, what was his name? Gardner, selling singles, uh, cigarettes in New York, and, he, oh. and he's put into a chokehold by police. It wasn't necessarily racing, but when we conduct the war on drugs, it's a license for police to use any amount of force they want, and it doesn't matter because he's a drug dealer. If, if you're suspected of drugs, we can we can knock down your front door in a no-knock warrant because it's drugs. And no one cares because it's a drug dealer. It's somebody involved in drugs, and people hate drugs. But the fact of the matter is that most crises in America cannot be solved without changing drug policy. All right, let's so go back. I want let's, well, Jim, uh, Jeannie, uh, let's, I want to go back. Let's let's go to a suburban conservative woman, and let's let her respond. And then I want to hear from our other guest, Jeannie. What's your response? I mean. Uh, how much further could the drug laws be amended in in your neck of the woods before the the people would would they be cheering it or would they be upset in arms and want more police officers on the street? Well, in our suburban area, uh, when marijuana was legalized, there were a number of cities who basically voted to opt out. They didn't want any of the drug uh, marijuana dispensaries in their area. They did. Not want to see it. Now, I mean, if you're talking about decriminalizing hard drugs, uh, uh, that is going to bring, I know this is a a national program, but people should know in the Illinois House, they just decided to decrim hard drugs. They made that decision or they just voted on it last week. Um, But I just talked to an expert who uh, does did drug interventions at, on the board, Texas border. I interviewed him long form about immigration and other stuff. And these drug cartels that are that are backfilled by China with the Chinese fentanyl coming over and creating this problem are wreaking havoc on the the, the illegal immigration, the crime, and everything. So it's decrim is one thing, legalization is another thing. But the root cause of, of these hard drugs coming into society are all the externalities that you have to pay for. I don't think suburban mothers and suburban folks or actually anybody wants to continue to pay for people's drug problems. 
and you are going to feed but in, that. But in the, but in reality, Jenny, in, in 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 reality, aren't many of the sons and daughters of those suburban, you know, fathers and mothers, aren't they aren't they failing to deal with their own children who may go into the inner city of Chicago and they'll know exactly what block to go on to buy drugs, hard drugs and and, and lighter drugs. From somebody, uh, a drug dealer on the street, they they'll they'll know the intersections. In many cases, those are suburban kids. That is correct. You are absolutely right. It it, it has a drug. The drug um, use knows really every demographic is using it. I, I I understand that, but you know the fact that now cops have to carry around Narcan and respond to this stuff. You know maybe they should be doing other stuff. I mean, if you're going to legalize drugs and you're going to decrim drugs, to what extent am I as a taxpayer responsible for all of the, the fallout from that? How about the remedial education that has to happen because of the case? How about in, enhanced um, auto insurance costs for additional I want to come back to folks. We have to go to a break. When we come okay. back, Jim, you've got your hand up. I know you're chomping at the bit. We'll come back to you, but I want to bring uh, Josh Cantro into this conversation as well. We'll come back with all of our guests when we roll on from Chicago. 1-800-723-8289. I'm Bruce Dumont, and this is Beyond the Beltway on the Smart Talk Radio Network. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family and community lending their strength and support. Join the voices for recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Fourteen clubs. That's what they tell us a legal golf bag can hold. And while that leaves a little room for balls and tees, it doesn't leave room for much else. There's no room left for deadlines or conference calls. Not a single pocket to hold the stress of the day or the to-do list of tomorrow. Only 14 clubs. Pick out the right one and drive it right down the middle of Pure Michigan. Your golf trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. And uh, we're going to begin with uh, letting each of our guests uh, take a moment to introduce themselves and give us a little more on their background. Let's begin with uh, Josh Cantrow. Josh, welcome back. You've been you've been away for a while. Well, Bruce, I appreciate you having me on again. And um, it's always great to be on this show. I am a uh, Republican attorney uh, practicing mostly in the technology and cybersecurity space. And in addition to appearing on this show, I've got uh, an active uh, Facebook blog and uh, and other uh, media that I do. And, You're also uh, on the on the Beyond the Beltway fan page, which is uh, if you are a regular on this program, that's where your essays show up. And uh, you are most prodigious, my friend. Well, I, I enjoy that fan page, and uh, and even some of the pushback I get is good to have. A diverse range of opinions. One other thing, again, since you and I have been Facebook friends for a long time, and I said this, I think the last time you were on the show, uh, you have had the the good fortune and the time uh, to spend much of the last year uh, touring around the United States with your with your sons 
in various uh, ski resorts and all kinds of interesting places. And uh, uh, the bonding experience that you and your sons are having is something that I'm sure that uh, they will uh, remember for the rest of their lives. And as someone who is a Facebook friend, I I admire you for the ability to do that. So congratulations. We'll have a special award on Father's Day for you. (laughs) Well, I I appreciate it. And being able to work remotely uh, is is very helpful. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've been blessed by this this opportunity. They do school remote. I work remote. And we get out into the great outdoors. Very good. Let's go to Jeannie Ives. Jeannie, those in the Chicagoland area know you, but for those around the country... About a little background. Well, I am a mother of five. I always start with that. I'm also a West Point graduate, but I'm a Republican, a former Republican state representative, and I am the co-founder of Breakthrough Ideas, which is a policy advocacy um, organization that we, I started about three months ago, uh, trying to connect uh, voters uh, with policy. And let's go to Jim Garrick. Jim? I'm a retired uh, attorney, a former assistant state's attorney, a former delegate to the Illinois Constitutional Convention, helping write Illinois' 1970 Constitution. The last 30 years, I've been uh, active in drug policy reform. I, I was an officer in an organization called Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, made up of people who fought the war on drugs uh, and and. and including judges, prosecutors, undercover narcotics agents who recognized the war on drugs causes what it was designed to prevent. It's prohibition that has put more drugs uncontrolled and unregulated everywhere. Jim, let me Uh, ask you a question, because I I mentioned in the introduction, this has been a lifelong uh, crusade for you. And I know tonight you're talking about some things that you think still need to be done to, to totally end the war on drugs. But as you look back on your life, how do you feel about the the public attitudes towards uh, relaxing and decriminalizing marijuana for medicinal purposes and also for recreational purposes? Do, do you do you have a sense of personal satisfaction, even though it's maybe a long way from what wow. your real goal has been? There's too much yet to be accomplished to find too much satisfaction, but I agree the pendulum is beginning to swing back. We went to the extreme of zero tolerance, of intolerance, of morality policing, of the reincarnation of prohibition, changing the substance, but again, re-energizing the gangsters, the the shootings, the violence, uh, the Al Capones, the Pablo Escobars, the the, the Guzmans, uh, and when Changing drug policy without changing our attitude of intolerance towards one another and and the habits or preferences that we have, we cannot, in my judgment, make progress with nearly any crisis you want to talk about in America. <clears throat> okay. Whether you uh, want to talk about guns or gangs or crime or prisons or taxes or deficits or overdose or trade imbalance. All right. I want to come back. I want to come back. I want to let Josh. Just a minute, Jim. Just a second. Josh is raising his hand. We're going to go to him in just a moment, but I want to spend a moment talking with David Masiotra and letting David tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, Bruce. Uh, great to be back with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I am a writer. Uh, I write regularly for Salon and about music for No Depression. And I'm the author of several books, uh, including Mellencamp, American Troubadour, 
uh, and my latest, uh, forgive the plug. Uh, We're showing it right now. We're showing it right now on the big screen. Oh, great. Uh, (laughs) I am somebody. Thank you. Uh, why Jesse Jackson matters. And I spent, uh, six years conducting interviews with Jackson and traveling with him, uh, as research for the book. And I'm happy to be with you tonight, although it's Oscar night and I'm a little disappointed. We didn't have a red carpet before the show. (laughs) Well, uh, we have a red carpet here in the studio, but what can I say? Let me ask you, let me ask you a a question because this past week in the press conference, or at least the, the big press conference that followed the verdict in Minnesota, Al Sharpton, who's basically been dominating the microphone, uh, popped up. And in that picture, and we're showing it for those who are watching the video portion of our program right now, there's a picture of Al Sharpton in front, and this Jesse Jackson is like in the third row. And he he doesn't look very good, but the fact that he is so far back from the microphone, at least to... uh, many millions of people for decades in this country. It's, it's, uh, it's seeing Jesse Jackson in a, in a declining role. And I'm wondering how Jesse is dealing with that since you speak with him. Well, he's uh, 79. He has Parkinson's disease. Right. So uh, part of his appearance uh, on that day was a symptom of Parkinson's, something right. called facial masking. Right. Uh, it's interesting what happens with Sharpton, and there's a lesson for uh, students of history. Jackson's star began to descend, and Sharpton's began to ascend when Jackson was caught on a hot mic criticizing Barack Obama and doing it rather crudely. Uh, and Sharpton, around the same time, was shrewd enough to say, I will never publicly criticize Barack Obama or anyone in his administration. So subsequently, Obama invited Sharpton to the White House many times, never invited Jackson. Mm -hmm. And the media mainly cooperated with that new alignment. Mm -hmm. However, I will say that every Democrat running for president uh, personally met with Jackson seeking his endorsement uh, in 2020. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot of Chicago regularly meets with Jackson and the uh, mayor of Minneapolis following the Floyd murder. uh, The first request he put in for a meeting uh, outside of his local circle was with Jackson. I thought it was also I thought it was also important, David, in the uh, in the brother of George Floyd, who spoke at that news conference that I'm referencing he was the first to bring up Jesse Jackson's name and he was talking about the battles that had been fought that, that, that celebration, which they were not, it wasn't quite a celebration, but at least uh, they were pleased with the verdict that that was something that uh, probably could have never happened had it not been decades of, of early activity by Jesse Jackson. So it was a, it was a bow to Jesse, even though uh, it sort of underscored, uh, you know, the sort of the, the sadness in his eyes as he was, sort of in the, not in the back row, but uh, it was certainly uh, an accolade that I'm sure uh, uh, Jesse Jackson, you know, appreciated. Anyway, we've yeah, got to, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say quickly, you read my mind. I was actually going to make that point next, that his exact quote was, uh, Jesse, you taught us how to do this. Right. Yes, he did. I think in the eyes of history, Jackson's record will be much more sterling than Sharpton's and others. Right. And your and your book is the the forerunner of of of, uh, 
perhaps many books to come, but uh, you're you're there first, and you're you've been talking uh, with the real man while he's still alive and well. Uh, let's you. go back to uh, Josh Cantrell. Josh, you were raising your hand. You wanted to jump in on something that I think uh, uh, Jim Garrick was uh, as he was denouncing the drug war on drugs. Yes, and I, I I haven't weighed in on this discussion yet, which is is dominated the show so far. And I just wanted to say that you know I I get some of what Jim is saying, and I I probably agree with with some of it, but. There's been no discussion at all about that there are cons to decriminalization, that you've got increased addiction that can happen. You've got um, existing treatment uh, centers are not equipped to handle this situation. Um, And so it seems to me that at a time when we have this Oxycontin crisis and this opioid epidemic and Purdue Pharma is paying like $11 million dollars to our $11 billion into a fund for treatment, why would we be wanting to um, let for other drugs loose on the American public? And I, I just, I'm just having a hard time understanding that. Jim, back to you with Ed Eugenie. Well, Josh, um, you should take a look at Switzerland that decriminalized all drugs. And many people thought that use would go up, addiction would go up, crime would go up, juvenile delinquency would go up. And every single one of those categories, it decreased rather than increased. Uh, and that's just decriminalization. But I am advocating not merely decriminalization, but the legalization and regulation and control of dangerous drugs. Not because I'm in favor of drug use, because the most effective way to put more drugs uncontrolled and unregulated is to prohibit them and, and make it into a business that uh, enables uh, changing marijuana in Illinois into a billion-dollar legal business. Jim, I'm going to – Jim, we're, Jim once, once, we're, we're going to stop there. Uh, I'm going to say that uh, you, you've made your case uh, throughout the broadcast. We are going to go back to some of the other things that are a little more contemporary when we come back. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight from Evanston, Illinois. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Along the way is where we find the unexpected. Along the way is where we take in the scenery and often where we have the most fun. Sure, along the way can be the place we stop to fill up or grab a bite to eat. But in Michigan, along the way becomes the place we've been longing for. Because enjoying the journey is always pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Larry Miller and Marion Marshall and Dave uh, Tomac are all watching the program this evening. And Dave Tomac, he's got a question for you, uh, David, and then uh, we're going to get back to our discussion. Uh, He says, Reverend Jackson used rainbow push money to pay for his illegitimate child's care. Is there truth to that? And did you discuss that part of Jackson's life with him? 
Jackson did have a child out of wedlock, uh, extramarital affair, uh, but there, there is no evidence that he used uh, rainbow push money to make the child support payments. He made child support payments through a legal courtroom agreement, uh, and there's no evidence that he used rainbow push money to do so. Does he ever talk to the daughter, and, and, and where is she now? Yeah, they're very close, actually. Uh, the whole family is close. They were able to put aside uh, the awkward, to put it mildly, yes. the uncomfortable circumstances of the conception, and they've all come together as a family. She just recently graduated from Spelman College, and uh, mm-hmm. she's currently in graduate school, I believe, studying psychology. Okay, well, thank you for clarifying uh, that point, and uh... Uh, Jeannie, I want to go back to you and, and, and look at, uh, kind of switch gears and, and go back to what uh, Congress is going to be trying to do uh, to deal with the issues that uh, at least are perceived to be important to the American people. Um, the Republicans would like to talk mm-hmm. about the cost of the infrastructure bill, the $2 trillion infrastructure bill. They'd like to get, uh, they'd like to get back to uh, being tough on illegal immigration where do you think they should be spending their time, and and the what is the most uh, what's the most fertile issue out there between now and twenty twenty two? Well, there's a number of issues. It's really hard to just pick one, but I think uh, it's universally um, agreed that the border is a crisis. It's just simply that uh, President Biden doesn't want to go down there and actually see it for himself. But the border is a crisis. American people know it. They know that there's a double standard right now by the media in covering this. And this is going to have far-reaching far ramifications into everybody's community eventually if we continue to have a surge in uh, illegal immigration coming across the border. I mean, our heart goes out to people from the Northern Triangle looking for a better way to life, but this is no way to traffic them in. It's very dangerous. Um, the cartels are making big, big, big bucks off of, you know, charging fees to ferret these people over the borderline. And, and it's wrong. So the border is a huge deal. I think spending is out of control. And I think the public understands that. The idea that on top of a $2 trillion co- supposedly COVID relief package, you now want $2.3 trillion in spending is outrageous. I mean, just to give you one little, um, little inkling here of the disparity, uh, Biden's looking for $2.3 trillion in the plan uh, Rep- Senate Republicans have offered up $568 billion in, um, in infrastructure. Get a load of this. In the Senate plan, they want to spend $299 billion on roads and bridges. In the Biden $2.3 trillion plan, which is four times greater, they only want to spend $115 billion in roads and bridges. I feel like the divide is huge, and the American people are very upset that we're not taking care of uh, first things first, and it. Um, it's well, not- some some would su- some would suggest, uh, uh, Josh, to you, some would suggest that by investing in some green uh, infrastructure, that you're really looking to the future. You're being progressive about the future, and uh, you're you're trying to uh, begin the process of training people now to shift over to some of the new jobs. Is there some, um, is there some wisdom to that thought or not? I think there's some wisdom to that thought, but the numbers that Jeannie just quoted, which are accurate, show how much pork and how much non-infrastructure is in a bill that is touted as an infrastructure bill. Infrastructure 
means roads and bridges to people. That's what it traditionally means. it doesn't mean all this other stuff. And so to, to me, does yes, it mean broadband? Do Don't you wouldn't you include broadband in that? Is that sort of like an information? Perhaps, but the meat of it should be roads and bridges. And that's the point. And and so this is a big bait and switch by the Democrats. But Bruce, I wanted to bring up another point that's related to this. Sure. And that is that with all of this um, going on right now and all all of the spending and the extension of unemployment benefits and COVID relief and the stimulus checks and all that, I am hearing from small business owners throughout America, in places where I travel, that they are having a hard time hiring people, getting people back to work because the incentive to work is not there. They cannot pay them what the government is paying them to not work. So I think that's a huge problem as well, and it could be a winning issue for Republicans. David Masiotra, do you uh, do you think that there's some fear that people don't want to go back to work because the being on the government dole is easier for them and, and maybe even more profitable? heard that point raised many times, and I think it's in complete contradiction with uh, human nature. Of course, a small percentage will coast whenever they have the opportunity, but most people aren't so stupid. Why do you say just a small percentage? Because most people aren't so stupid that they don't understand that eventually the uh, increased unemployment will expire. They also want health care, which... The majority of Americans get through employment. They want stability for themselves, and especially if they have families. I know several people, I know this is anecdotal, but I know several people who lost their jobs during COVID. They all got on unemployment, and simultaneously they were all applying for jobs, and now they're all back to work. When we come back, we do have to pause. We're going to a break now. Okay. When we come back, we're going to talk to Jeannie Ives and Jim Garrick and David Masiotra and Josh Cantro. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight on Smart Talk Radio Network. We will be back after the news, wherever you get your news. And then we'll be back with discussion and another full hour of Beyond the Beltway. some, news is about their opinions. We believe the news should give you the facts without bias, so you can form your own. We believe in news, not talk. Facts, not opinions. News Nation is on every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America to give you the information you need. Everyone calls it the news, but we'll actually deliver on it. Seven nights a week in primetime. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com. News Nation. It's your news, your nation. 
Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. Hour number two of Beyond the Beltway continues from Evanston, Illinois. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thank you very much for joining us tonight on the Smart Talk Radio Network. And uh, I want to uh, I want to go with a caller to start this hour because he's been standing by for quite some time. Let's go to David, listening to us in the great state of Washington. Go ahead. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Bruce. Uh, I've got a question, David. I, I've got a question for you before you ask me a question. Oh God, I know it's coming. Go ahead. No, you don't. <laughs> You are coming. I called from the great state of Washington. Do you want another state of Washington, D.C.? Uh, no, I'd like that part of Washington, D.C. to be incorporated into adjoining states. That's the most sensible answer to the equation. That gets representation to the people that they so sorely say need representation. Okay, stand by. I want to get everybody's reaction to your answer because uh, it's a good question for the guests as well. Uh, Jeannie Ives. Uh, if you were a member of Congress and you've tried to be a member of Congress, uh, would you support the idea of D.C. statehood uh, and why or why not? Uh, no, I disagree with D.C. statehood, and I think that um, it's unconstitutional as I read uh, the legislation that's been proposed. Josh Cantrell. I agree with Jeannie. It's unconstitutional. It's a bad idea, and I do like the caller's idea. David Masiotro. 
I support statehood, but I also would uh, support the incorporation idea because as it stands right now, as the caller suggested, the residents of DC have almost no independent representation of their own and that shouldn't stand. That's voter nullification. Jim Garrick, you figure sta you, uh, you favor I, statehood for DC? I do. I would add uh, DC as a state and it would make it easier to break uh, the tie vote that we're suspecting of becoming along. Okay. Um, so and, you're, and, you, uh, you are, you're looking at it from a political standpoint, <laughs> supporting the Democrats. It's going to be two more U S senators. Uh, what about what about the well, concept of what the caller suggested, though? I mean, let let's say that maybe you don't get quite that far, and the Democrats are going to try for that. But uh, why not split at least for well, elections? At least in, for elections. In America, it, in America, it's fundamental that people should be represented. That's one of the reasons they threw the T in the in the bay. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, just as people should have the right to vote, uh, people should be represented in in the halls of Congress making the laws and deciding what direction we go on many of these important issues. And the vote to write, uh, the, the, the right to vote would also include uh, those uh, who have served uh, time in prison, I assume, you're from your perspective. Does it also yes, include most, those most, that most are currently states, serving? If someone is cur now yeah. allow people uh, after they've served their time to vote. Uh, and, and that's as it should be. What about those that are currently serving in prison? Should they vote? Well, I think that's more debatable. Um, yeah. uh, I, 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 even people who are in prison, they're still citizens and they have problems with their life and the conditions that they're living uh, under. And so I, I don't have a hard time allowing those people to vote either. Jeannie Ives, your, your take on that. Uh, well, listen, as uh, the Democrats want to upend everything that and there's no moderation at all in this particular Congress or this Biden administration. I mean, from uh, basically federalizing election laws, uh, they want to do that. Uh, they want D.C. state statehood. The House passed a bill for that. The House already passed legislation on packing the Supreme Court. I mean, there's there's no stopping this train right now except for the Republican Senate and okay. Unfortunately, Bruce, uh, go ahead. Yeah, just very qu a quick response to Jeannie. Uh, I always enjoyed being on the program with her. Yeah. Uh, but election laws were federal until the Supreme Court Shelby decision, which was handed down in 2012. So uh, that's not exactly new. Also, uh, in 1959, Hawaii and Alaska became states. Both of my parents were born. Uh, before 59. So, uh, you know, some of the, you might want to couch these ideas, and I'm not questioning your sincerity as radical, uh, but they're really not. Uh, they're entirely in keeping with. But in 19, but in 1959, well, just one second. In 1959, at least those that were discussing the issue then, they they thought that there would be one state that would be overwhelmingly Democrat, and they were right, Hawaii and one state that would be predominantly Republican, Alaska, and it was. So it was, a little, you know, each side got something they could crow about. In this particular case, what do the Republicans get out of this? Jeannie Ives. Well, it's not even that. It's just simply that that enti those entire, uh, that population could be subsumed into Maryland or Virginia easily, and you could uh, still keep this small circumference around the Capitol that is, part of the constitution that it's going to be there. 
And, and that's the answer more than anything. We don't need a whole nother state. They're just doing this for political purposes. Everybody knows that. Um, can I, and can I put my little- hand up, Bruce? Yes. Go ahead. Yes, just, go I, ahead. I'd Back like to you. To say, so I'd just like to say that the idea of uh, making statehood so we can break a tie is the epitome of politicizing them. That's just yes. ridiculous. I mean, if, if San Diego currently was not part of California, I'm simply suggesting it would be the same as saying, okay, now San Diego, you're part of California. Now they get representation. That's perfectly appropriate, and it doesn't politicize the, the topic. Uh, and you did throw me a complete curveball there, Bruce, by the way. But, uh, and, and also, if you're in prison currently, you should not be able to vote. You're, you're, you're getting a penance. But once you've paid your penance to society mm-hmm. and you're released, you should get all your rights back. Right. Uh, that's just how it should be. Right. I agree with that. And by the way, I think Republic by the way, I think Republicans should do more at the state and national level. I know they've done it recently at the national level with the uh with with the Second Chance Act, but I think Republicans should do more to to vie for the prison vote. I mean, it's a huge voting block. And Republicans are are perceived as always, you know, standing in the in the schoolroom door on that. Which is not the case. It wasn't the case in Florida, and they they should do more on it. You call, I, you know, we completely like threw your curveball. What what did you call about, David? <laughs> well, I I called about the racial issue we were talking about in policing. Um, Good. And I was going to give a shout out to Jeannie for her, you know, West Point issue because I served with a couple West Point uh, people, and they took the uh, Marine Corps nice option. Uh, but I was going to give a shout out. But I was going to say on the the policing. I'm I'm so sick of everything being made into a racist type issue. Everything from the Chauvin trial, the Michael Brown, uh, you had after the trial, you had people coming out and making statements con- comparing the Chauvin trial to Michael Brown and other cases where racism was never proven. In fact, the, uh, the Michael Brown case, uh, that officer, they looked at that case three different times. And none of those times did they come up with any reason to charge that officer. But yet they still bring that case up as part of the long list of cases that prove systemic racism in this country. And if you want to know what systemic racism would look like, it would be a country where black athletes were not allowed to be paid more than a white athlete. You would not be allowed to be an Oprah Winfrey and have the billions of dollars she has. That would be a systemically racist country. You would not be allowed to progress in that kind of a country. Uh, and, yes, and, you would not, and, you would not, and you would not be a two-term pr- former president of the United States. Absolutely not. Right. And you wouldn't be a and you wouldn't be a vice president of the United States if that were the case. No, David, we've got to move on. You've got more than your your quarters worth tonight. <laughs> uh, we're going to roll All on right. and we're going to take uh, we're going to switch gears and talk about some other subjects. One eight hundred seven two three eighty two eighty nine. Thank you very much, David. And uh, again, if you want to join the conversation, I may throw you a question as well. One eight hundred seven two three eighty two eighty nine from coast to coast and border to border every Sunday night on the Smart Talk Radio Network. I'm Bruce Dumont from Evanston, Illinois. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Wish you were here. Words we've often seen on postcards and letters from friends and family. Luckily, there's an entire state that whispers, wish you were here. Climbing my dunes, sailing on my breezes, 
walking along my beaches and getting lost and found in my forests. This is a postcard from Michigan, where wishing you were here is the heart of pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back. Uh, we're getting some comments on our Facebook feed. Uh, Jeff Gotland, uh, who watches the show, is watching the show in beautiful uh, uh, Palm Springs, California. He says, quote, I have seen a local news stories with ABC and NBC News reports on the inability to get their former employees to come back to work. These are uh, businesses that have obviously been down uh, during the uh, COVID-19. Uh the unemployment was $300 weekly. These bonuses will last until July or September. I believe it's September. Yeah. And uh, the COVID payment, uh, payments, children not back in school, payments are equivalent to $15 per hour. So why would you go back to work if you're getting that money tax-free? So, David, there's somebody that challenges what you had to say on that. And, Josh, you've got your hand up. You want to jump in. Yes, Bruce. I, I, I just want to say that that comports with everything that I have seen and heard throughout my travels in the country over the past year. And talking to small business owners, these aren't all conservative Republicans. Some of them mm-hmm. really hated Trump and they were Democrats and all of this stuff, but they all agree on this. And I heard this from so many people and had in-depth discussions with small business owners throughout the country that it, it's it's real. It's true. Okay. This has happened, and it's a problem. Okay. Okay. Wanna, well, let's go ahead, let, David. Let's just, for the sake of conversation, say that it is happening and it is a problem. Just for the sake of conversation, isn't that an excellent argument for raising the minimum wage? Wouldn't it seem no. that that would prove wages are too low? No. No, uh, not at all. Genie That's what markets eyes. do. Genie markets eyes. improve the minimum wage. In fact, uh, the small business people that I know, they're typically paying minimum wage in in our in this area. And having a federal minimum wage is an outrageous idea when you have such a disparity in income and cost of living around the United States. You, you can't do that to small businesses. You will break them. They cannot afford it. Because I'm sorry, but when you say a $15 minimum wage to the business, it's costing them easily $20 just for all the other additional taxes and uh, what not on them. So, I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay I wanna, I, saying, I go, last word to you, and then I'm going to switch gears. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you're saying that we need to provide more incentives for people to want to work. It would seem that higher pay and better benefits would be those exact incentives, and yet you're against all of that. No, so we need the government no, out of the way and, and not interfering in the market. That's what we need. And by providing this extended unemployment and all of these stimulus checks, which are not needed, people are getting vaccinated, the economy's coming back. We need to listen to the small business community. The large corporations and the big public employee unions, you know, they have a lobby and the Congress listens to them because they write the big checks. What I'm talking about should not be a partisan issue. It is not a Democratic issue or Republican issue. I am speaking up for the small business owners across this country who, when they hear that I'm on a national radio program, they beg me to bring this issue up. So this is for them. This is for them. I don't care about the big corporations. I'm talking about the small business owners, the neighborhood cafes, the businesses that we all like to go to that are dying. 
because of COVID and because of the policy response. The government just needs to get out of the way. Jim Garrick, what do you think? Government out of the way? Well, You'd like them to get well, out of the way? Uh, I, I, I frankly agree that uh, the checkbook uh, has been open for too many people, too many, uh, too many unemployed for too long. Uh, with, without giving some consideration to the countervailing uh, thought that, uh, well, it's an incentive not to go to work. I think it's a good response, David, that that well, okay, let's raise the minimum wage to $15 because it, it addresses the economics of people who aren't earning enough, uh, so they're incentivized to do the wrong thing. And then uh, this checkbook has been open for people who don't need the money who are not employed, who haven't suffered a loss. And yet I, I couldn't believe they didn't reduce the, the number to like 75,000. You've got to be mm -hmm. making 75,000 uh, uh, instead of what was it? 150, I think. Right. I mean, they should have grossly reduced it. Have, have um, speaking about dis disincentives, speaking about incentives and disincentives, what is the disincentive Jeannie Ives for someone living in one of the, the triangle countries, what's the disincentive for them not coming or attempting to come to the United States? Well, right now we know that there really isn't uh, a disincentive. Uh, I guess it's always hard to leave your homeland, uh, but many of them are in corrupted governments where they are not, they don't physically feel safe. And it's simply because they are run amok by gangs and crony corporate structures, and uh, it, it's, it's heart-wrenching. But the answer is not to incentivize them to come to the United States. We can't do that because it's a dangerous journey, and many of them are trafficking their children. That like, I, And I go back to my Texas Policy uh, um, Foundation interview with Josh, Josh Jones. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can listen to it online. It'll be up this week. But I mean, he literally said they are taking these children and recycling them back over because if you come with a child, you are getting fully entered into the United States with no questions asked. And, and so th this is really harmful to the children, uh, but they're incentivized because of the money factor and the po extreme poverty and the corruption. Is there anything that can be done then by our government to provide any support to these triangle countries? Because do we really trust the triangle countries to create programs that would keep their citizens in their country and not come to the United States? Jim well, Garrick. Yes, answer, okay. answer that one. Okay, Jim. But answer that question and then uh, go on. Jim? Uh, that, who's the question directed to? Towards you. Okay. You had I your mean, hand up. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we, pe people have an incentive to come to our southern border because of the economic uh, destitution and conditions in these uh, uh, Central American countries. But there's a secondary motivation, and that is that the government is so corrupt, even when we send money there, there's little chance that it's going to get to the people to right, help. Right. But number two, drug gangs run much of these Central American countries. You know, either your son's going to work for our drug cartel or he, we're going to kill him. Uh, well, he's not going. Boom. How about your other son? The United States insists that the world have drug prohibition through the United Nations. So the United Nations passed the 1961 Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs. 
that requires the entire world, 186 nations approve that treaty. That treaty requires each nation to go home and, and to enact legislative and administrative laws that criminalize drug use and provides for the incarceration of people who violate the terms of those prohibition treaties. Because of that, the United States in 1971 went from 300,000 prison population to 2 million people, becoming the prison capital of the world. With okay. bills at the state Jim, and Jim, hang on a second, because uh, Josh said earlier in the program when I asked him to respond to something, he said there were some things that you were saying that he agreed with. So let's focus, Josh, to you, and then we're going to go to David. Focus, if you will, on what can be done, if anything, to the triangle countries who uh, who are allegedly are being uh, run by corrupt governments with maybe heavy there's involvement no- by, uh, you know, by the drug cartels. No, 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 no. I, wanna, I, 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 I know. You, to- you said it. You said, But, Josh, go ahead. Yes. So it seems to me that the prior administration had worked out deals with these countries uh, to keep citizens in those countries mm-hmm. while they were applying for asylum in America. And everybody talks about Trump this and he's bad that and this and that. But those deals were worked out. And actually, Trump had a really good working relationship with Mexico's president. I'd like to see us go back to whatever the Trump administration was doing before this surge and this influx where we have a president who campaigned on come to this country. I'm going to open the border. I mean, he didn't say it in those words, but that's essentially what he was saying. David David Masiotra, on, on just one aspect of this, what was wrong with the processing in Mexico, which was part of President Trump's policy? Which, which let people make their case for asylum in Mexico. And while they were being processed, that's exactly where they were staying. They didn't set one foot in the United States. What was wrong with that policy, which, which uh, Joe Biden got rid of uh, ASAP after he became president? It was a humanitarian nightmare. Because Why? You had, you had people who were fleeing persecution, fleeing threats of violence, Sometimes people, the violent perpetrators were within their own home, uh, women facing abuse and other forms of uh, sex trafficking. They couldn't leave their local community. So sure, they could submit an application, but they're still there in danger. That, that's what, the problem. What, David, that answer, here, here's the $64,000 question for a progressive. Why is that our problem? Why is that the problem of the United States of America to worry about all the people in the triangle countries, all of them that are alive today, all of them that will be alive in the next 40 years? Why is it our responsibility to take them in, give them shelter and give them protection? Well, first of all, the United States passed a law in the 1960s, and it also co-signed an international treaty uh, saying that they would give at least a hearing to anyone seeking asylum. So that's law, and that was done after the Holocaust, or it was done because of the Holocaust, because there was an agreement that countries weren't as welcoming as they should have been to Jews escaping the horrors. I want you to follow up on that, but we do have to pause. I want to get everybody's reaction to it. I'm Bruce Dumont, 1-800-723-8289. Back shortly from Evanston, Illinois. 
Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family, and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. 14 clubs. That's what they tell us a legal golf bag can hold. And while that leaves a little room for balls and tees... It doesn't leave room for much else. There's no room left for deadlines or conference calls. Not a single pocket to hold the stress of the day or the to-do list of tomorrow. Only 14 clubs. Pick out the right one and drive it right down the middle of Pure Michigan. Your golf trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back. Thanks very much for joining us this evening. David Masiotra is here. He is author of a new book called I Am Somebody. It's about Jesse Jackson and uh, a very important book that's out. Jim Garrick is here. He has spent most of his uh, adult life uh, looking for uh, drug policy reforms. He's been successful in some areas. Uh, He ran for the uh, Cook County State's Attorney. He also ran for governor uh, in a Democratic primary and was unsuccessful. Jeannie Ives ran for governor in a Republican primary and was unsuccessful. So we've got a couple of people that know what what primary defeat is all about and also our election defeat is about, I should say. And uh, Josh Cantrell joins us. Uh, He is a very articulate uh, lawyer, and uh, uh, we thank them all for joining us tonight. We're going to get back to our discussion and a call in just a moment. But let, let me just mention something. And this is primarily for people who are watching the program either on Facebook Live or on YouTube. Uh, You probably know that whenever we go to a commercial break, we sort of dissolve and we show you a picture of one of our many affiliate uh, markets. And it's a little slide that basically says, don't go away, we'll be right back, or Bruce Dumont's name on it. And my question to you is, uh, we put one up, uh, I'm going to throw it up right now. Uh, This is something that uh, I personally took uh, just a few blocks from my house. And this is a beauty shot from the city of Chicago. And I'm sure that everybody listening to the program this evening has in your hometown a very nice, pretty shot, a nice, a nice, it could be a postcard. If you want to include that as part of the bumper graphics that we use on this program, all you have to do is take a nice little picture of it with your uh, with your iPhone or your Android and uh, send it to me at uh, Bruce Dumont, 1944 at gmail.com. And maybe, maybe we will include a photo from your hometown. Obviously, let us know where it, where it is and if it's a favorite uh, watering hole. It, it can be a, a tourist shot or it can be a place where uh, uh, people gather to listen and watch Beyond the Beltway every Sunday night. Uh, let's go back to calls. Terry is, uh, he's around the campfire in El Paso, Texas, and we welcome him to the broadcast this evening. Terry, uh, what's on your mind tonight? Uh, well, the Washington uh, D.C. statehood issue. Yes, I tend to agree. I tend to agree with those who think it would be uh, a constitutional problem. But that's not my point tonight. I also agree with those who say uh, that they are citizens of Washington D.C. don't uh, endure taxation without representation. My suggestion would be for the Senate and House to pass a bill exempting. All the citizens of Washington, D.C., from federal taxation. 
Now, that would have two effects. It would kill the argument about no uh, taxation without representation. And two, I think there's enough people that would try to move to Washington, D.C. to avoid federal taxes that you might get more political balance in that city. So it, to me, but it's, it's, a, it would it's be a, too, a twofer. I would think it would be too small. I don't know whether there's the. Geogra- it would be small. That's true. It I mean, there's, there's, it's it's not going to. Yeah, but but uh, there's no doubt that some people would consider that in where they decided to live. Okay. No, I no, I I, I certainly agree with that. Anybody mm-hmm. anybody that uh, cares about taxation, that's why so many people are going to Florida because uh, uh, taxes are low. They don't have a state income tax. Uh, right, and it would make well, it much uh, more fair for the people that do not have representation. All right. Let's let Jim Garrick. Looks like he wants to jump well, in on this. Oh. Well. If if you if you lower my taxes, then I don't have a right to vote. Uh, it it doesn't seem like a good response. People should okay. be represented by people in government, and uh, you shouldn't take an area the size of D.C. with the number of people that are living there, and and not afford them the same thing that we maybe will be offering Puerto Rico. It's and, also and other it, places. It's also one of the worst run cities, one of the highest crime rate cities. There's nothing that's other than the monuments. There really isn't anything uh, uh, in the local business of government. There really isn't a lot. There's a lot of beauty there, but there isn't a lot of well, uh, reason to go there. So, whose drug pol- Bruce, whose drug policy <laughs> did we have to live with in D.C.? All across America, Johnson and every Johnson. city, Blame every Johnson hamlet, and Johnson. every village, drug One, prohibition. Okay, all right, all right. I want to go back. Okay, One, uh, Jim, you go ahead. Uh, Terry, thank you for your call. It looks like uh, Josh wants to jump in. Josh? Yeah, I was just going to say that uh, I don't think there's a, a whole lot of federal taxes being paid by D.C. compared to uh, the rest of the country. It's such a small, small percentage. Okay. So, you know, in, in any event, it, it's really um, a bad idea, and it's unconstitutional. Okay, thanks. D.C. statehood is not going to happen. We're going we're gonna to move on. Uh, Terry, thanks very much for your call. Uh, Jeannie, I, I don't believe that you've been on the program uh, since the January 6th insurrection uh, on the Hill. So my question to you is, uh, as someone who's a lifelong Republican, how badly did that incident hurt the brand of the Republican Party? Well, I mean, it certainly had its effect, I would say, but it was more associated with President Trump, who still is seen as the ideological leader of the party. There's no doubt about it. He really is. Uh, But as his time out of office sort of fades to some degree, um, I think that, you know, Republicans, we've all been a little bit more individualistic. We haven't, we don't necessarily come together like the Democrats, um, and so we like to stand on our own a little bit more. And, we, and we, you had Republicans uh, vote to impeach Trump over that incident, which would have never happened in the Democrat Party. So I think we can separate ourselves from that. I think what's really harmful here is that you've actually had some Democrats, though, say that the, the insurrection or and it's not even an insurrection, the, the skirmish, the, the illegal entry into the Capitol. Uh, is the sim- is similar to 9/11, to Pearl Harbor? I mean, who are they kidding? This is this is a ridiculous comparison. It needs to be tamped down. It was nothing of the sort, and everything needs to be put back in perspective here because people are getting way over their skis thinking that this was that major of an event. 
Josh, let me ask you a question a little bit differently, but uh, the incident of January 6th, how bad, in your view, did it did it tarnish the image of Donald Trump to those people who did not think that it was significantly tarnished before January 6th? I think it unfortunately played into um, a lot of what people said about Trump that, you know, those of us who defended him for many uh, years, including me on this show, mm-hmm. it, it unfortunately played into it. I mean, I've been a vocal um, a critic of, of the president's role in what happened there. Um, and, I, you know, it wasn't just his remarks on January 6th, but it was everything leading up to that. Having said that, I agree with Cheney. It's been way overblown by the media. I mean, look, we had would you, a Democrat, would you, But would you, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to make that point, but I, I want to ask it this way. Would you agree that the actions of some people who have identified themselves as Trump supporters in reality, as well as the perception that media has created of that mob that showed up on Capitol Hill, that that has created an image for the party that leaders of the party who want to win elections can't go too far in denouncing that action because if they did, they would lose some voters, maybe a significant number of voters who were represented by that group and who may liked what was done that day, or at least liked the idea that uh, there were people who cared enough about America to show up and, uh, and, and vent their spleen uh, with the world watching. Bruce, there may be some truth to that, but the reality is, is that Republicans, as Jeannie said, are in, more independent. They have denounced. There have been denunciations from top Republicans, including past party leaders and existing party leaders. And, you know, I, I would just love to see more of that happening on the other side. And, and we don't see it. There was not a single Democrat who voted to censure Maxine Waters for her obstruction of justice, potential obstruction of justice and clear incitement. She had no business going into Minneapolis and stirring things up like she did. David Masiotra, respond just to that particular point. There isn't a Democrat that's going to stand up to Maxine Waters, just like there's a lot of people in the Republican Party that don't want to stand up to uh, some of the leaders of the uh, movement that uh, showed up on Capitol Hill. Truth or not true? I don't think that's true. You will get some Democrats who criticize Waters, but it, more to the point, it's an asinine who? comparison. Who? I'm sure if if uh, Biden was asked, he would. No, 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 no. But who? Who? Who would the Democratic Party stood up and said that what Maxine Waters said was inappropriate? The judge said it. But what Democrat said, you know what, that's too far. You shouldn't do that. Or Or what Democrat has stood up and said, to uh, Talib and some of the members of the squad, you know what? I don't like your comments. They're too anti-Semitic. Oh, there's many who've done that. You have a stronger argument on Waters because I haven't they? heard who, any on Waters. Who, who are who are they? There's do many you know their who names? announced Talib and, and others. But do you know their names? Do you know their names? I just said one, Joe Biden. He's the president of the United States. Uh, he he didn't announce. He them. didn't announce when them. he was a candidate. He did. No, he doesn't. No, yes, not, not by name. Not by name. Oh, yeah, he did. I'm, there was I'm, a no. whole Democratic primary in which he was asked about it during debates. 
So was Kamala Harris, who d- he never he name. never denounced them by name. And my point is that each party has they've got firebrands who who speak before they're thinking, before they think. They are rabid in the, and uh, and extreme in their rhetoric, and they can say whatever they want. The media will get upset. They will get more upset with a Republican that says something wacky than a Democrat. And there isn't anybody at the leadership of that party that's going to come out and call them out because they're too fearful that there's too many people in the Democratic Party, many of whom are African-Americans, many of whom are not. They like what Maxine Water has to say, and they also like the people that showed up at the Capitol and raised hell. Both, both parties have got to deal. So they've got to be too careful because they don't want to lose votes. We've got to pause, and then we'll be back with our last segment. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Along the way is where we find the unexpected. Along the way is where we take in the scenery and often where we have the most fun. Sure, along the way can be the place we stop to fill up or grab a bite to eat. But in Michigan, along the way becomes the place we've been longing for. Because enjoying the journey is always pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. You're listening to Beyond the Beltway on the Smart Talk Radio Network every Sunday night. Nice to have you with us. And uh, I want to go back to you, uh, Jeannie, because, and all you, Jeannie and Josh, to get your response. Um, what do you think uh, is the likelihood? The, the likelihood. Hi, who's that? Jim, who was that? There was some woman that just came in and took your headsets away. You're talking and you can't hear them. I know. You can't hear them. That's because she took your headsets away. Your wife just, Jim. I think you got to file suit. You got to go we're, call we're the police. We're having a sound issue. Okay. Well, you're you're coming in loud and clear, <laughs> Jeannie. I, my question to you is this: um, Donald Trump is he likely to be the Republican nominee, or do you believe, as I think I believe? that he is sending some signals that maybe he's not going to run again. Well, nobody thought he was going to be the Republican nominee in 2016, but he was. So you never count Donald Trump out, but I, I, the more he gets out of office, I mean, I don't know. I think he's, um, he, I think he, maybe he prefers to be a kingmaker. Um, and certainly he's got a really tight relationship with, uh, Ron DeSantis, who's just doing an outstanding job as a governor. And I think, you know, he may want to forge his way that way, but I, I think he'll always be playing in the game from here on out. Josh, do you agree with my assessment that Donald Trump is maybe sending some signals that he likes the idea of maybe being the kingmaker and will not run again in 2024? I don't know, Bruce. I mean, right now there's really nothing else for him to do other than be kingmaker um, with in terms of midterms, in terms of governors and things like that. 
Um, I just think it's too early to tell. I, it wouldn't surprise me at all if uh, Donald Trump runs again. Don't you think he should be focusing on his legal issues and on his financial issues? And those things are not going to go away if he uh, chooses to uh, run again. There, 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 those issues are there regardless. Um, as made up as the legal, the quote legal issues are. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, Donald Trump is a force uh, in the party, and I just think it's too early to speculate in terms of what he should be doing or shouldn't be doing. Look, if he decides not to run, we have outstanding candidates. Now Santos, you go ahead, Nikki Haley, etc. Well, let's go. Let's go back to Nikki Haley because you've been on the program in recent. Uh, years talking about Nikki Haley. In fact, you suggested that perhaps she should maybe even be a replacement for uh, for vice president. I think you said that on this program at one point. I did say that. But uh, her, her, she seems to have fallen out of favor uh, with Donald Trump, who didn't even want to see her in Mar-a-Lago. Does that create a problem for her that she's got that? And, and by the way, she and uh, Senator Rubio have both said that they will not run if Donald Trump runs. Yeah, well, it does create a problem for her. You know, as I said on this program last time I was on, Nikki Haley, I I, I think she's terrific, but she made a really bad move by trying to cozy up to Tim Alberta at Politico. She thought that he was going to write a really nice piece about her if she criticized Trump a little bit. And instead, he pocketed that and um, made that the lead part of the article. And then he criticized Nikki Haley at the same time and trashed her. So it was a bad move on her part. She's made some moves to get back to Trump. I'm hearing from insiders that there may be a a real attempt at reproachment there. We will see that. She is a great uh, dynamic leader in the party and Trump is a big part of the party as well. So I'm hoping that they can work that out. Are there other players, Jeannie Ives, that you would like to see uh, considering? It's also been said that uh, Chris Christie has sort of made up his mind. At least he's telling friends that uh, he may want to get into it. You sort of laugh at that. Uh, uh, Are you laughing at him or laughing at the suggestion of it? (laughs) Yeah, no, I don't see Chris Christie playing on the national stage again, uh, honestly, at all. I think we've got some really outstanding senators in Josh Hawley and in uh, Ted Cruz still. Uh, These people can, um, you know, stand up. They're standing up for the average American and they're standing against the establishment and um, and they're common sense people. I think that they could play. I think we've got a lot of good governors that could play, not just DeSantis. Mm -hmm. I've talked about Christy Nome. She got a little flaky on the transgender bathroom bill or um, Mm -hmm. transgender sports bill. So th- that kind of, uh, you know, doesn't make people happy. Um, but um, I think that we've got a, a deep seat, and I think the Democrats really have one, no idea. One uh, other issue I want to get everybody's reaction, but I'm going to start with the Republicans on this, because uh, in the history of this program, we've talked to a, an early a boomlet many years ago to get rid of Gray Davis as the governor of California. Uh, they're now trying to get rid of the current governor, Governor uh, Gavin Newsom. And uh, Caitlyn Jenner has announced that she is running for governor of California. Uh, Jeannie Ives, what do you think of that idea on a scale of 1 to 10? Where would you put it? The idea. A zero. A zero. Josh, where would you put it? I I, I would put it pretty low, probably around a 2 or a 3. David Masiotra, where would you put it? Zero. Zero chance. 
And Jim Garrick, where would you put it? Put a zero. How about if she came out and uh, and said, "Let's abolish uh, the drug war"? Then you then uh, you you might might agree with her. Well, you know, the funny thing is, President Trump, before he became a politician, said the only way we're ever going to stop drugs is to legalize them. Okay, well. And of course, once he became a politician, then 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 there was bipartisan support. I know. And, and you stopped you stopped praising him at that point. You know, <laughs> I'm not. No, we are we are out of time. Our thanks to Jim Garrick. Jim, thanks very much for joining us. Jeannie Ives, always a pleasure. Josh Cantro, nice to have you back on the show. David Massiotro, you're one of our favorite guests. And I Am Somebody is the name of his book about Reverend Jesse Jackson. Our thanks to Connor McKnight for his assistance in the production of this program. I'm Bruce Dumont. Until next Sunday night at this same time, good night from Evanston, Illinois. What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. I act like I don't care if he comes to my games, but I hope he does. I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope. Our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, I hope he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support. 
for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership.